Welcome. It is wonderful to see you this morning. It is a joy to be here. Thank you, Pastor Samuel, for your prayers. Thank you all for your prayers. Um, it's interesting. I have some apologies to make. Uh, first of all, I apologize that we have to stop the wonderful preaching of Acts that our pastor is bringing us. Uh, um, it has been a real blessing, Pastor Samuel, to, to sit under your preaching of God's Word, especially as we see the church grow as we see the church move, as we see the church love and pray. Um, that's my first apology. Um, my second apology is when Pastor Samuel and I discussed and I asked him, may I preach? I feel the Lord calling for me to preach. And, and we thought this would be a good weekend because uh, many of you were going to be out of town. He was going to be out of town for this conference. And um, I don't think we realized it was Palm Sunday when we made that decision about two months ago. And so my apologies today, traditional Palm Sunday. Today is Palm Sunday as we are nearing that Easter celebration. But I won't be preaching on palms. I won't be preaching on the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ. No, we're not going to focus on palm trees. We're going to focus on olive trees today. Um, and that is what I would like to do this morning. And that's focus on Christ. Focus on Christ as he neared that faithful day, 2,000 years ago, when the cross was looming in his heart, when the cross was looming in his mind, I want us to go to where he was in the garden and see and feel what he felt and see what he saw. And, and I pray that we will learn something so wonderful, so gracious from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as he prepared. It's interesting, preparation is an important part of our lives. I, I don't know about you, but I have memories, let's say Thanksgiving, I have memories of preparing for Thanksgiving. I have memories, well, I don't prepare anything, but I have memories of watching Diane all day long as I sit and watch TV. I remember, wow, what a preparation. What work. What focus this woman has to make this wonderful meal. Lord, somebody should help her. You know, and I call the boy, boys, stop watching football, boys. Help your mother. And we're fascinated about preparation, aren't we? I, at least I am. I'm fascinated, for example, the Sochi Olympics. And I, and I, and I always look for news about the preparation as the Russians uh, were, were getting ready the Olympic venues. And then there's this juicy gossip. Well, what went wrong? What went right? And those of you who are soccer fans, I know there's very few of you here. Soccer is this game played with the foot. Um, it has a ball. But this summer, we're going to have the World Cup. And the World Cup is an every four-year event where all nations who are good enough to compete at this level come and have this incredible tournament. And I was curious. It's in Brazil. And there's lots of news coming out of Brazil about how bad the preparations are for this year's World Cup, how stadiums are half-built, how they started work years late. And something about that intrigues me. Something about that interests me. Like, how could you start so late? Didn't you know that millions of people were going to come? To your country and expect a wonderful event and I know here in America we don't the United States we don't focus but most of the world's attention will be on the World Cup this summer I can guarantee you that and many of us will share time I think I know Pastor Samuel's excited you know he's he, he's a soccer fan uh, and and I am as well and many of you here and we we're gonna share time together we're gonna watch um, but it's interesting because what we're watching at the end is to see who will get this cup who will get this cup? Who will win the tournament? 
But I want to focus today on something else. I want to focus today on a different man's preparation. I want to focus today on an event that would lead to a cup. But it is not like the World Cup this summer. And yet, it is a cup and an event that we want the whole world to focus on. We would love the whole world to know that 2,000 years ago, there was a cup involved, and there was preparation, and there was prayer. So today, would you turn your Bibles? I do hope you have a Bible with you. If not, please take a Red Pew Bible that should be located somewhere in front of you. Um, if you do not have a Bible, you're welcome to keep it. It is our gift to you. No greater gift than God's Word can we give to you. Um, would you turn to page 915 or in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, verses 39 and 46. This is on page 915 in the Red Pew Bible. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, verses 39 through 46. This is the word of the Lord for our hearts this morning. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down, and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping? He asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. Would you pray with me? Lord, we praise you this morning. As my brother Robert so beautifully put, Lord, words cannot describe the praise that we bring to you. Words cannot describe the the joys in our hearts. But Lord, this morning, as we come together, I pray, Lord, that you would look deep in our hearts. Myself first and foremost, Lord, Lord, and that you would cleanse us and purify us. Lord, I pray that you would shine a light, knock down any barrier, tear down any wall that we might have in our hearts this morning to hear your word. For it is like honey, Lord, it is sweet and it will fill us. Lord, I pray you forgive me for the sins that I have committed this week. Lord, I, I praise you that there is forgiveness to be prayed for. And this morning, Lord, I pray that all of us would have ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to take in the glories of your word. And Lord, let the meditations of my mouth and the words from my heart be pleasing and acceptable to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I want to remind us, where are we in this garden scene? Where are we? Well, where have we just come from? Jesus had just shared his last meal with his disciples. In all four Gospels, this Last Supper, in preparation for the Passover celebration, we see Jesus continuing to instruct continuing to prepare his disciples, continuing to pray, and even as we read in the other Gospels, continuing to sing as they head forward, as Jesus himself knows what is coming next. And out of the peace 
even amidst the betrayal, out of the peace of that room, out of the song sung in that supper setting, we now come into sharp relief. Jesus walks a short way into the garden, a place where he had come many times before. And it's these events and actions of Christ that bring into sharp relief that the cross is as near as it will ever be for Christ. In order to complete this final act, in order to complete his coming to this earth, his purpose, we see Christ preparing himself and his disciples. We see Christ preparing himself and his disciples through deep prayer. Through deep prayer while persevering in submission and obedience to the Father. And as the title of my sermon, Easter is near, prepare Pray and persevere. So you might be asking, what is Christ preparing for? What is the core of his prayer? What must he persevere? What must he endure? That is what we must ourselves intently meditate upon this morning if we are to be ready to glorify God during this Easter season. We've got to be clear what we are here for. Let's begin by looking at how the Savior prepared for this final act of love. From the scripture we read in verse 39, Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. So here we find Jesus preparing himself. How? First of all, he continues an activity that, he, that is usual and customary. We, we know that Christ came to pray often. We know through the Gospels that Christ prayed often wherever he was. He set aside time to pray. But it's interesting, in this case, he's putting himself in a very special mindset, I think. Why? Because the Garden of Gethsemane, as it is called in the Gospels, the Mount of Olives, it is an interesting place to pray. This place was a traditional burial place for Jews. There are thousands of Jews buried on the Mount of Olives. And tradition holds that the Mount contains the tombs of the prophets Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. This is a place that is both familiar and yet bound up in the worship of God the Father through the, steeped in the proclamation of his word. It is also a high place. It is one of the highest places in Jerusalem. And from the Mount of Olives, you can see all of the city. And even though it was night, I wonder if Jesus came to this high place, came to a place where the dead were buried, for he had a special prayer. He had a special preparation in his heart he needed to make. We also see, secondly, that Jesus brings some disciples with him. He brings his disciples, and then we read in one gospel, he brings two, John and Peter, with him in a special case. He brings trusted confidants and companions. These are men he has grown to love and build fellowship with over these three years of teaching and learning preaching and praying, asking and seeking. In a sense, Jesus' entire life has been lived in preparation for the events of this night, beginning with his boyhood and learning of the scriptures, followed by his three-year earthly ministry throughout Judea and Samaria. So from these verses, what can we do? What can we see? What can we learn? What can we emulate? As Christ is preparing for the cross, he puts himself in the right place and the right mindset and ensures that he is not alone. So I want to give you three questions as we prepare for Easter. Three questions. Not only as we prepare for Easter, but as we prepare for our entire Christian walk, our entire Christian life. 
Here are three questions I want you to ask of yourselves. Are we in the right places? Are we in the right places? In our Christian life, do we put ourselves in the right places so that we might have a proper worship of God? Or do we find ourselves in places that we never thought possible? Because we did not prepare our hearts, we did not prepare our minds, we had no plan, and we were taken away by the winds of the day. Do you find yourself in a marriage that is struggling? Why? Were you not prepared? Did you not turn to the Lord first and foremost? Do you find yourself in, in places of conflict with your family at work? Why? Why are we not prepared for those times when the Lord has so clearly given us the example to be prepared and to be ready? How is our life in the church? And I don't just mean the building. I mean, are we in the right places to be able to worship and serve? These are questions I want us to ask ourselves. Second question is, are, are we on the right time? Are we on the right time? I think Jesus came at the right time, the night before his crucifixion, to come now and speak to his heavenly Father. Where are we when it comes to time and our preparations? How is our time in the Word? How is our time in prayer? How is our time preparing ourselves for the day? Does the morning come and go and noon come and go and you've not thought once about the Lord? and his goodness and what you are here to do for him. And finally, question number three, are we around the right people? Jesus brought his disciples with him to this crucial moment. Do you and I find ourselves around the right people? Do we, do we surround ourselves with godly men and women whom we can trust, whom we can learn from, whom we can confess to, whom we can pray with and pray for? Or do I find ourselves floating away to non-Christian friends, looking to them for guidance, looking to them for answers? I've done this in my life where I, I've asked that I go backward and forward where I, sometimes I'll spend more time with un, ungodly friends. And I say to myself, well, I'm trying to minister to them. I'm trying to preach the gospel to them. But really, I think I find myself not wanting to be under the light, not wanting to be under the, the, the testimony of another brother or sister as they say, how is your heart? How is your sin life? This morning, the youth, we, we, we gathered as, as male and female, and what did we do? We, we, we confessed our sins to each other so that we might pray for each other. We might be prepared throughout the week to deal with the struggles and strife. And I can tell you this, families, our youth, they struggle, and they have needs, and they need prayer. The world is a, a dangerous place for young people. And they need to be prepared. And families of youth, we need to prepare them. It is our job. So from these first two verses, I, I hope you understand that we must ask ourselves the questions. Are we in the right places? Are we on the right time? And are we around the right people? And now when it is time for Jesus to focus intensely on the thoughts of his heart, the meditations of his mind, the depths of his soul... Christ does what he has always done and what we must do. He turns to prayer. Prostrated, powerful prayer. We read in verses 41 and 42, 
He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Here's one of the most tension-filled, awe-inspiring, gut-wrenching scenes in the life of Christ and really in the entire word for me. Because here's the Savior calling out a question, and it's a question that needs answering. Is there another way? Is there another way? But let's be clear. What and why is Christ asking this question? What is the cup that he is referring to? It's definitely not the World Cup of the soccer world. This is critical. If we don't get this, if we don't understand what this cup represents, we will miss everything about who Christ is. We will miss everything about what he came to do. We will miss everything about who we are. We will miss everything about the glory of God the Father displayed right here in the prayer of God the Son. What is the cup? What is the cup that Jesus asks, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me? Well, simply put, the cup that Jesus must drink from is the cup of the wrath of his holy and righteous Father. How do we know that? Because the Word teaches us this. Psalm 11, 6 through 7, Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. Isaiah 51, 17, Wake yourself, wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs, the bowl, the cup of staggering. Psalm 75, 8, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Job 21, 20, Let their own eyes see their destruction. Let them drink the cup of the wrath of the Almighty. Jeremiah 25, 15, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath. And make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. Zechariah 12, 2. I'm going to make Jerusalem a cup that sends all the surrounding peoples reeling. Judah will be besieged as well as Jerusalem. And finally, as Daniel read earlier in the service, in the end times, the cup of God's wrath will make one final appearance. To all those who do not, quote, keep the commandments of God and their faith, in Jesus Christ. Jesus must drink this cup. He truly is the man of sorrows if he must drink the cup of wrath of a holy and righteous God. It is interesting that he is on Gethsemane. He is in the garden. And Gethsemane in Hebrew means oil press. It is a place where the olives were crushed to make olive oil. And here, our Savior is being crushed. Crushed, tested by the weight of this cup. And as you see, there are many dimensions to this scene because as I prayed and I meditated, first of all, it is true. Can you imagine Christ? Here's God come in the flesh, and yet his flesh has no sin. And what is death? Death is the result of sin. Death is the result of sin. So I imagine 
Christ in his flesh and his humanity must have said, wait, why am I drinking this cup? I have no sin, yet I will die. But this cannot explain the prayer. This cannot explain the suffering, this agony. You know why? Because we know Christ had been preparing himself and his disciples for the cross since the beginning. He knew he would die. He knew he would drink this cup. Jesus was facing death. But dear believers, it is not any kind of human death. I've often been curious about this, especially when I became a Christian. I said, well, Jesus, is he scared of dying? Is he scared of the cross? And then I'm reminded, and I read many meditations, how many thousands and tens of thousands of Christians have gone to their deaths singing the glory of God? How many have been burned at the stake crying out, thank you, Lord? How many have been tortured and killed, imprisoned, beaten, and yet all they do is glorify God? We will find out later in Acts that as Stephen died, the first deacon, as he was stoned for the preaching of the gospel, he, was, he had the face of an angel. The glory of God was upon him, and he was at peace. And yet, here is the Savior asking, Lord, may this cup be passed from me. No, this is not any human death. This is not a death that you and I will never experience this is not a death that any person has ever experienced. We do not worship a weak Savior. We do not worship a Savior who could not handle the pain, the physical pain of the cross. And it was painful, there is no doubt. But I don't need a movie to show me the physical pain of the cross. I don't need a movie to paint in glorious, gory detail how painful it was when Jesus was hung. You know why? Because that is not the pain he experienced that drove him to ask this question. Our Savior was strong. He can handle that pain, just like every many thousands and tens of thousands have gone to their deaths proclaiming the gospel and praising God. No, this death was different. And I believe, first of all, what may have happened in the garden was that it is now, it is now that God the Father has begun to forsake his son. It is now that God the Father has separated from Christ, and Christ is getting the first taste of what it's like to not be in perfect communion and fellowship with his heavenly Father. And it is gut-wrenching, and it is painful. Do we feel that way? Do we meditate on our communion with Christ, in Christ, and lament how weak it is. And when I believe God the Father removes himself from the presence of his son in the garden, he's preparing his son for the cross. And his son asks a very simple question. Is there another way? What's at stake? What is going on? For we read in Matthew and Mark that Jesus' soul is so overwhelmed, it's overwhelmed what? To the point of death. Jesus is going through something that you and I have never and will never experience. And he asked the question, and there is no answer. Heaven is silent. What is at stake here? 
What's at stake is that Jesus is on the doorstep of the cross. And why is that important for you and me? Why is that important for the world? Because there is a problem. Man has rebelled against God. Adam and Eve at the beginning had a choice, and they made the choice to disobey God and rebel against God, and we are all heirs to that rebellion. We are all relatives to that disobedience. And there is only one way that we can reverse this. There is only one way that it is possible for us to come back into the garden with fellowship with God, completely and wholeheartedly innocent. Because when Adam and Eve sinned, and we are the offspring of that sin, we worship a God who is also holy, who is separate, who is a righteous judge, as we read earlier. And he must judge the sin of man. He must judge those who are guilty, and he must punish those if he is to be righteous, if he is to be God. And yet, he made a way. Through his love, through his grace, and through his tender mercies, he made a way. He sent his son, Jesus, the man whom we are thinking about this Easter season. He sent his son, God in the flesh, to come and live a sinless life and die on the cross and be a substitution for our death, for our judgment, for our guilt. And then he proved that this plan had power by raising Jesus Christ on the third day. And with that proof, we now have a way. And it's so simple. It's so simple that a child understands it. We must have faith. We must put our faith in Jesus Christ. For as the word says in Romans 10, 9, if we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. That is the gospel. That is what we proclaim. That is what we pray. That is what we sing. That is what we should be thinking about. That is what should be in our hearts planted deeply. That is what we should tell others unashamedly. That's just, the gospel is what she cultivate. It's what we should praise. It's what we should live. It's who we are. And if you don't understand this gospel, if you've never made that faith real in your life, you can do that. You can do that in your seats right now. You can do it as you walk out of this room. You can do it if you come talk to me and we, we, we pray and we we. We meditate and we read God's word. It's a decision that you can make anywhere, anytime. There is no special formula. There is no magic creed. There is faith, a gift from God. And he calls you to repentance. He calls you to be those who at the last day will not have their, the cup of his wrath, as we read in Revelations, poured out on them. Why? Because you have kept the commandments of God and you have faith in Jesus Christ. Yes, on the doorstep of the cross, in the middle of this garden, amidst the silence from, amidst the silence from heaven, 
in this prayer of anguish, sorrow, and all-consuming focus, we have the heart of Christ. We know exactly what his entire intent was in his life and death. We know what he was always prepared to do, and there was never any hesitation to obey his Father in perfect submission. And through the silence, he does learn the answer to his question, is there another way? And the answer is no. And what does he say? As we meditate on the fact that the cross will happen, it has been planned since the beginning of time. It is a plan to redeem humanity from the disobedience and rebellion against the Creator. Oh, Lord, how glorious when we read in Romans 5.19, For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Jesus obeyed. In the midst of his preparation, in the midst of this prayer, he obeyed. And something wonderful has happened. The cup of God's wrath has now become a cup of blessing. We will drink this cup. Yes, believers in this room, we will drink this cup, certainly, but it is no longer the cup of God's wrath because we are innocent. On the judgment seat, the Lord sees Christ when he looks at us. This Thursday, we're going to celebrate in the preaching of God's word. We're also going to share in the Lord's Supper. And as we celebrate and remember that night so long ago, as the disciples ate and broke bread with Jesus, Luke records in verse 20, in the same way after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Yes, we drink from the cup. It is the blood of Christ, and it is nothing but blessing. For those who are in Christ Jesus, there is therefore now no condemnation. None. It's over. So how do we respond? What do we do with the events in Gethsemane? How can we reply to this question in our hearts? Well, of course, like Jesus, I think we must turn to prayer. We must turn to more prayer than ever before. We must be a praying people with the core of our prayer centered on obedience and submission to the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. The content of our prayers must be the gospel of Jesus Christ himself. So I ask you today, Park Hills Baptist Church, how is your prayer life? How robust is it? Are you daily preparing for it? Or does it just come with a whim and end with a whimper? Yes, you must prepare to pray. Jesus gives us instructions. Go to your room. Go to your closet in the darkness and pray. Prepare yourselves. Reduce your distractions. Be mindful. Read God's word as you prepare. Pray over God's word. Do we spend more time talking about prayer than actually praying? Is that the kind of church we are? Is that the kind of believers we are? Measure yourself against the prayer of Christ in the garden. Let every thought, action, emotion be captured in your prayer lives, in your cries to God, and in your daily praises. 
Prepare to pray alone and with others. What a wonderful concept. Hold prayer meetings. Let us return to a commitment to prayer in our church life. Easter demands this preparation and prayer if we are to fully abide in Christ and He in us. If we are to fully receive the abundant life He promised, we must pray. If you, we are fully to obey Him and His commandments, we must pray. And Park Hills, we must commit to the knowledge that apart from the Word of God and prayer, we will never grow in the Lord. I love what Pastor Kevin DeYoung said recently at this week's T4G conference. I know I should have been working, Pastor, but I was watching the videos. I'm sorry. Um, oh, what a blessing. Pastor Kevin DeYoung said in his sermon on inerrancy of Scripture and evangelism, do you know that you have nothing in your arsenal other than the Word of God and prayer? And if you know how to grow your church apart from the Word of God and prayer, then don't bother growing it because it may not be a church. Amen. Amen. I needed to hear that. I needed to hear that. And I broke down and I sobbed. And I said, Lord, I have sinned for I thought there were other ways. I've gone to other methods to try to grow myself, my wife, my children, and there are only two. This church. We need to pray, oh Lord, we need to pray. We need to pray without ceasing. We need to pray for our enemies. We need to pray for our leaders. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Pray for our city, our state, our nation. Pray for the unborn. Pray for the lost. Pray for the suffering. Pray for forgiveness. Pray for you. Pray for me. Pray for the gospel. And finally, let us continue to see what the Word of God reveals for our lives as we continue to read in verse 43. As Jesus prayed, an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping? He asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. In the midst of Jesus' prayer, in his anguish and suffering, God was not silent. As Jesus persevered, and now words came in the darkness, and no words came in the darkness. His father's hand was there, strengthening his son. Jesus was sent an angel. And even though Jesus is the creator, and the angel is the created thing, we know the word says, for a little while he became lower than the angels. And here an angel tends to him. And this reminds us that we are not alone. We are not alone, just as Christ was not alone in, his, in the darkness. As the angel ministered to him, we are ministered by his Holy Spirit. And Jesus continues to persevere. It's interesting. The angel comes, and what happens? Is everything okay? No. He says, the, the word says, he prayed more earnestly. He prayed more earnestly. There was perseverance now. In Jesus' prayer, there was a perseverance to, to follow through, to finish the task. And it's interesting because Luke, being the doctor that he was, uses these very medical terms. Sweat, like the drops of blood. It's interesting in the Greek, this word for blood, you get the word thrombosis. And what Luke is trying to show us in this scene, that Jesus' focus was so intense, 
his perseverance so true that on a very cold night, he was sweating so much that it was like he was bleeding, just dripping blood, heavy drops of blood. And the words that Luke uses actually bring to mind in the Greek the words, the idea that an athlete who is preparing to race is an intense focus. This is not Christ lamenting. This is not Christ sorrowful for the answer that he was given. No, this is Christ persevering through anguish for the fact that he is going to do what he came to do. And now he is in complete focus. Reminds me when I used to play tennis and you'd warm up. We'd warm up before we play. And the point was to warm up intensely. And I remember you would just be sweating. You would just be sweating, but yet you were ready. You were ready to play. Every pore was open. Every reaction and reflex was primed. You had warmed up intensely. Now you were ready to play the game. I'm curious. I wonder that's, that's how those soccer players are going to do it this summer. They're going to warm up. They're going to be focused. Sweat is going to be dripping, but their mind is going to be completely on task. They're going to be in the zone. What perseverance, what intensity. Christ is now preparing himself to take the final path, to take his path. And yet he finds his disciples, the ones who we rely upon to carry on his work, the ones he will rely upon to carry on his work by spreading the gospel to the ends of the earth and by leading his people, his sheep, he finds these disciples sleeping and full of sorrow unprepared, not in prayer, ill-equipped to persevere. And this is you and me, isn't it? If Christ were to show up at my door today, I think I would fit this description, and he would say the same, why are you sleeping, Sam? Why are you dead? You are not preparing. You are not praying. You are not persevering. Yeah, you may get lucky and score a goal here or there. But you are not in me, and I am not in you if you do not do these things. And what does Christ do? He reengages. He is fully committed. He is coming down from this time of trial and anguish. And what does he do? He focuses on disciples and continues to do what he's always done. Teach them. Prepare them. What does he tell them to do? Pray. What is the weapon that he gives them? Pray. This reminds me again. We must prepare for the physical and spiritualities about to appear. He's preparing them for something that they don't understand. They have this vague notion. They've already been dispelled that Jesus Christ is not this warrior king who's going to come and destroy Rome. They got that message, I think. But they know something is going to happen, but they are ill-prepared for it. And I think Jesus reminds them, pray for yourselves as I have prayed for you. Persevere in all these things so that you may finish the race of faith and finish it well. If we do not do these things, dear brothers and sisters, if we do not prepare, if we do not pray, if we do not persevere, we will most certainly fall deeply into temptation and sin, and we will end our usefulness to our master, our king. And here's this wonderful relationship. There's this special relationship that I think is being taught to us here. Let us be clear about it. 
Prayer leads to God's strength and presence in our lives. And God's strength and presence in our lives leads to prayer. You see that? They are not disconnected. They are a circle of the Christian life. You cannot have God in your life deeply without prayer, and you cannot not pray if God is deeply embedded in your life. I tell you this so that we will all have a barometer. We'll all have a metric. Our prayer lives are a thermometer that tell us our, how hot or cold are we for our Lord and Savior. The great English preacher, Charles Spurgeon, was keenly aware of the power of prayer. In one of his sermons, he preaches, Shall I give you yet another reason why you should pray? I have preached my very heart out. I could not say any more than I have said. Will not your prayers accomplish that which my preaching fails to do? It is not likely that the church has been putting forth its preaching hand, but not its praying hand. Oh, dear friends, let us agonize in prayer. Charles Spurgeon, who is often called the Prince of Preachers, stated, we need less princely preachers and more princely prayers. Let us agonize in preparation, prayer, and perseverance. I'll finish with a final thought. Christ is indeed our example in word and deed. This pattern I present to you, this is our example. But in this instance and in every other, more importantly, he is the reason for our existence. Not his patterns. He is our identity, not those of his disciples who followed him. He is our mission, for the mission he carried out calls us to follow him. I like the way the late 19th century English pastor R.W. Dale put it. The real truth is that while he came to preach the gospel, his chief object in coming was that there might be a gospel to preach. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you that on that mountaintop, on that garden, in that press, you showed us your heart. You showed us everything about who you were. And Lord, let us not devalue your humanity so that we protect your divinity. Lord, in your humanness, as you recoiled from the horror of death that was coming, for you were without sin, Lord, your heart was full of nothing but obedience and submission. It was full of nothing but love for your Father and for the world. Lord, we thank you this morning that you have shown us how to prepare for Easter, how to pray through this Easter week, how to persevere through Thursday and Friday and Sunday and for every day that you have us on this earth. Lord, we thank you that you've shown us that it is only through your word and through prayer that we can claim anything, that we can grasp anything, that we can come into contact with you. Let there be no other method, Lord, that comes between you and us. We thank you, Lord, for the gospel, that on this mountaintop the gospel was sealed by your glory and by the obedience of your Son, Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, let us focus on you the author and perfecter of our faith. Let us focus on you, the creator of all things. Let us focus on you and bring glory to you this Easter season as we focus on the glorious obedience of your Son, on his sinless life, 
on his obedient death on the cross and on his glorious resurrection. Lord, let us be believers who live that life, who live lives of teaching and praying, who live lives of dying to self, and who live lives of resurrected glory as we submit to you, as we obey you, as we keep your commandments, as we grow in our faith in Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray, and for your glory. Amen. Would you stand with us?